0: really, really thrilled to be joined by someone I've known for many, many years, uh, both professionally and personally, uh, Glenn Burgess. And without me going into a long diatribe of what uh, Glenn has been through and his experiences, Glenn, it's probably best to hear it from you. So can you give everybody an idea of who you are, what your background is, and, and what you're up to these days?
1: Sure, you bet, Daryl. Thanks. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Glenn Burgess and I'm currently the uh, Deputy Fire Center Manager in the Kamloops Fire Center, uh, part of the British Columbia Wildfire Service. Um, I guess uh, my background goes back to 1986 where I graduated from tech school in you know, forestry background and started on an initial attack crew literally three days later and I've been involved in wildfire response and or forestry operations since then. So, A little over 35 years, I guess, now, going into that, maybe more. Um, A good portion of that has been with the Wildfire Service and doing Wildfire Response. And so I did um, move my way up through the organization as an operations chief and then as an incident commander and spent... um, five years leading one of our provincial incident management teams through uh, 2014 through the 2018 seasons, which I'm sure most of you are well aware of what 2017 and 2018 looked like in British Columbia. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, deployed for over 300 days in those years uh, in total, um, which when you think about how short our season in BC is, that gives you an indication of how often I was uh, out on the fire line Uh, with my team so um, yeah doing a lot of that and I've moved into the management realm now where I'm I still participate actively as a coach and as a leader to help the up-and-comers in the incident management team realm but in general uh, leading and managing the Kamloops Fire Center from the operational perspective.
0: And so and we'll get into you know that the young Len and then contrast that with Not the old Glenn, but the older, more experienced Glenn that we see now. Um, One of the biggest things I think that we miss as leaders and when we talk about development is the the self-mastery required around leadership. And by that, I mean, how do we manage our emotions, our stress levels, all of those things. Because in my experience, if we can't control the inside, then our ability to control or positively influence the outside is is lost right our communication goes down the tubes all of those other things so can you maybe talk about when you arrive on scene or you're deployed and and you're looking after an incident management team you don't even know which way is up in a lot of cases what are you feeling and and what are you what are you thinking as you arrive on scene or you start to interact with different people so so glenn the incident commander what, what are you thinking what are you feeling Are you feeling stressed out, overwhelmed? Can you walk us through what that might look like?
1: Yeah, I I think there comes a bit of uh, stress and anxiety. But for me personally, I kind of thrive on those things. So really, there is an excitement that comes with taking on a new project um, or a new incident. Um, And so there's that, but you need to temper that uh, excitement and enthusiasm with the, the reality of the impact on others that it's having. And particularly when you're in the public realm Uh, is one thing to be on a wildfire out in the hinterland where there's nobody around and you're, you know, just going about your business. But today, um, the reality today is we technically only go to the large scale interface fires, which means people are being negatively impacted either through our actions or through in their minds, our lack of action. Um, It's almost never mother nature's fault, it's always our fault in some respect. I think, you know, working with my folks, my team always is about, yeah, we're excited to be here. We love doing what we're doing, but we need to temper that with the the reality of the impacts on others and that sort of social awareness of our actions and behaviors. And particularly as the incident commander, because you are at that point, you are the representative of government doesn't matter what color shirt you have on, what crest you have on. You are the representative of government. And I think always remembering that and, and remembering that your behaviors are reflected upon that. Um, but I think for me, um, you know, I, stress reactions are different in everybody. And I think it's something that, you know, I did learn. I had to learn what stress reactions looked like in myself to manage that. Um, and sometimes that's a little tricky to do, and uh, quite honestly, when you're 23 years old, you don't have a good sense for that, so uh, mm-hmm. that that's really, for me, is, is recognizing, and you spoke to that, is, you know, how, how do you get to that point where you do recognize your own, I don't want to say weaknesses, and I hate the term opportunities for growth, but the reality is you have to you need to recognize the impact you have on others not just the influence but the actual impact
0: and, and so let's talk about that because um you know we've we've heard words like empathy vulnerability and compassion and you know 10 years ago these are not words that were even in the vernacular when it came to talk about leadership because the model was always about hard charging fearless and you know just get stuff down all of those other things so can you speak to some of the you know those those new words that we're starting to see with regard to building connection and you talked about the social aspect of leadership so things like empathy vulnerability and compassion because I know just knowing you personally, you're very, very aware and very, very good at those social interactions and the importance of what that looks like. So can you maybe shed some light on on your approach to dealing with people using empathy and all of those things?
1: Yeah. And I think there's two sides of that, right? There's this side that you need to work with on the internal side of your own incident management team and working with those. But then there's the public facing side as well. And and the reality is in the internal facing side, your own organization, your own people, you get to know them, you develop those relationships, but you have to understand them to understand their perspective. And so something I talk about when people ask me what my job is as an incident commander, um, you know, I said, well, you know, really if you break it down, I'm 90% team psychiatrist. That's what I do. I talk to the rest of my team. I make sure that they're okay and that they're okay to do their jobs, and that I've provided them the support, the resources, and all those things. At the end of the day, they're making the decisions. Sure, my name goes on the dotted line, but, you know, so I need to make sure that they're okay, and particularly of a mental state, to uh, perform their job adequately. On the flip side, when you're dealing with the public-facing side, again, as the as the face of the organization, whether it's the Incident or the complex or whatever it is, the public is looking for a leader at times who is good at making decisions and clearly makes decisions and talks about the decisions they made and why they made them, but understanding the impact that those decisions are having on those that are affected by that. And you know, we, you know, you need to uh, uh, empathize with those people, but I think they still expect you to make the hard decisions. And and I like to talk a lot about making decisions and accepting the consequences of that, and knowing that not every decision is going to be popular. But if you waffle and do nothing, the the public-facing side doesn't like that either. And so, you you do need to balance the empathy with what I like to call that sort of command and control. You're coming in, you're making a decision, you're clearly the person who's in charge. So I think you know really there's both sides of that, and that was something it took me. I, to be honest, quite a few years to uh, kind of figure out a little bit. I was always a bit of a bull in a china shop, so um,
0: well it, and I think it's it speaks to the the challenge that leaders have with regard to balancing needing to get the job done while still making sure that you don 't scorch everybody else in the in your wake you know yep. and that constant giving and, and taking and so how do you manage that because that really speaks to that the dance that a leader has to have, because if you're too empathetic or you're too compassionate, you're not going to do the job, but if you're too decisive, then you're going to burn out your people. So in your experience, how do you manage that? If, if you do.
1: Yeah. And and you know where we've uh, made a shift, my team made a shift a number of years ago, particularly with the public facing side of our uh, decision-making was, you know, historically government, has a process where we'll make a decision, we put it on a plan, and we send it out for comment. We're clear that the decision's been made, but now we want your comment. So, um, where we tried to move towards, particularly after some tough learnables in 2017, was let's engage those that are gonna be impacted before we actually make the decision, and talk about the decision, talk about the impacts, the consequences, And while we make it clear, we are still the decision makers. I think if you engage the appropriate clients, stakeholders, partners, first nations, community groups, whatever it is that are potentially going to be impacted by your decision, they still might not like the decision, but they were a part of the discussion around it. And I think it just sets a completely different tone. And, um, and I do the same with my own team. You, you know, it, you know, the word collaboration gets thrown around a lot. The word though, and the practice, it's easy to say the word. It's hard to practice that, particularly in a top-down hierarchical organization that's about command and control. So really working. and, And frankly, I've had success when we've made a decision, the outcome was what we would suggest might've been an unintended, unintended outcome. It didn't turn out how we wanted, but because everybody had been engaged, the, the outcry or the the bounce back was a lot less than had we just done it and then said,
0: oh, by the way, sorry, this went horribly wrong. And, and you bring up a really important point because during crisis right now, we're recording this while COVID happens, but I think this is a characteristic of crisis in general where to be agile and respond, you need to really flatten the organization and, and have the ability to reach out to the subject matter experts that normally um, you wouldn't even talk to. And so is that now just part of your approach in general? If there's a decision to make for the most part, one of the first things you do is, is do I have the right people at the table here? And if I don't, let's go, let's go reach out and bring them in to this table is is that really what you're saying
1: yeah you bet we we call it uh I, we actually coined a phrase i can't even remember what it was but really you know it's about bringing the people in and and but again i think it needs to be clear There, typically failings of organizations are when you don't have clear decision making you can't make every decision by committee in fact you can't make any decision by committee in my opinion but at you know, and, and so particularly in a command and control situation, it still needs to be clear who the decision maker is, but it's how, who do you engage? You engage the right people. And so you talked about subject matter experts, which, of course, we always want to bring in. But what's the definition of a subject matter expert nowadays? I'll argue that a traditional elder from a First Nations community could be a subject matter expert, not necessarily on firefighting but on the impacts to that land base, and more importantly, the impacts to their community in the event of. And so, expanding your definition of what a subject matter expert is, um, to include, for example, local politician. If you get the local mayor on side, or the local uh, whoever, MLA, whoever it is, who may not even necessarily have a legal obligation or jurisdiction, you know, they're going to tell two friends who are going to tell 10 others who are going to tell 400 others. Like, you just need to think about the impacts of that and how do you get all the right people? Obviously, we, our organizations like ours, are huge for having community meetings. We, oh, let's have a community meeting and bring everyone in and tell them what we're doing. Those can go horribly well, horribly wrong, or very, very well. Um, But the the test for me was, as we connect with the right people, communicate our message up front. I went through the 2018 wildfire season um, and worked a number of large fires in small communities and didn't have one request for a public meeting (laughs) because we had engaged all the right people up front who then communicated our message. We and made sure we had great, adequate messaging. So we brought the right subject matter experts in. Their expertise wasn't technical knowledge. It was social. And that is where you can really rely on a lot of that sort of, we'll call it collaborative decision-making, but really what is it's collaborative conversation about the decision we're about to make.
0: So what do you tell the leaders that are reluctant to do that? Because in my experience, a lot of times... A leader is reluctant to bring in outside assistance because maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's a, an insecurity or something like that. But what do you tell, the, tell that person that's used to making decisions in a vacuum and, and really dictating or mandating what that decision is? Because what I'm hearing you say is uh, to make the best decision, you have to bring in the, the knowledgeable people and bring them in earlier rather than later. But yeah. you don't always see that.
1: Yeah, and and I think, the you know, we really need to go You and I always like to look at it this way, what's the consequence of my decision? So the more significant the consequence, the more people it impacts, that to me tells me the pendulum needs to go towards bring them in first early and bring in lots. Now, I'm not saying that you overload your uh, incident level planning meeting with all these outsiders because we have a business to run as well but you, there's nothing saying you can't have a separate process to engage those right people. And and there's a reluctance to do that. You're right. Some people like to make decisions and I have the legal authority. I have the jurisdiction. I'm just going to make the decision. Okay. The consequence though of using that power and authority you have, you may not feel at your level, but somebody above you probably will. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it takes some time sometimes for up and coming leaders and uh, of who have authority to make decisions, to understand the impacts and consequences of their actions. And uh, once you learn that you start to be a little more collaborative, if you want to use that buzzword for sure.
0: So that, that's probably a good jumping off point because to talk about the young Plan contrast with the one we see now, because in terms of my own, leadership journey, I found that my leadership approach very much mirrored my maturity. And really what I, when I first became a leader, when I was young, it was all about me and I was in charge and people are going to do things that I'm telling them to do, you know, to a certain extent. And, and as I've gone through, I've realized that that's the exact opposite approach. So what did the young Glenn think about leadership? Well, you, I would submit you probably didn't even think about it as leadership, but looking back, you know, what, who was the young Glenn and, and what would you tell young Glenn now with all of your years of experience?
1: Yeah, I, I think thinking back, I was a very authoritative dictatorial leader. There's no doubt about that. I think I I was aware of the authority and the power I had based on the position I was in and I used it. And I actually didn't think about the consequences. I just did. I knew I was allowed to, I knew it was potentially the right thing to do, or in my mind, I always believed it was the right thing to do or I wouldn't do it. And so being oblivious and or didn't care about the impacts of those decisions. Um, And it's something I I talk to leaders about now is, um, and not even in crisis management, but in day-to-day leadership, there's, a, there's what I call leadership by position. And then there's being a leader. And leadership by position really means you just are a supervisor and you have line authority over the people who work for you. So, of course, they have to do what you tell them. Because you're a supervisor doesn't make you a good leader. It just means the job says you're a leader. You, you need to round that out. And I think it took me some time to learn that. Yeah, I'm a supervisor. I can tell you what to do. It doesn't, you know, and so early in the career, you, I think we're always happy to get promoted at first to become that, what we all call a leader. I would now call a supervisor because I think there's a difference. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I would, you know, and I work with people and in hindsight, I would obviously do differently. If I was 35 years younger and had today's knowledge, clearly I would approach it differently. But that's part of the learning. And and I think sometimes you just need someone hopefully to sit you down and and set you straight. And over the years, there's been a couple of people who had those difficult conversations with me. And at the time, it really, really annoyed me. Um, But, you know, when you look back, you go, you know what, maybe they were right. You know? Just a
0: little bit right. Not totally right.
1: (laughs) I think about an instructor in a leadership course once who we were uh, having a couple of beverages after the course. And uh, I asked for some feedback because I didn't feel I was getting the feedback I needed in the course. And uh, she was pretty blunt with me, and she just said, "I'll give you one thing." She said, "You got to think before you talk." <laughs> so, okay. kind of a light bulb moment, right?
0: So, right. Not yeah, it, I
1: still today. Sometimes I still do it, but I, I just am more careful if, if I talk before I think.
0: But but isn't it, it could be as simple of a shift like that? And and it brings up a really good point from a leadership perspective during meetings are you the first one to talk and are you the only one to talk because if you are that's supervising and that's probably now creating compliance and not commitment whereas if you're a leader you're you're creating commitment with that and can you speak to the the uh, as a leader what your job is around the people part of the job and you you talked about it when you when you first started but you said that that's a big part of the job, but what does that look like on the ground when you talk about being the, you know, the, the, the team psychiatrist kind of thing, what yeah. does that actually look like when you're deployed? Because let's face it, you shouldn't have time air quotes to be talking to people about their feelings and stuff. Don't you have a job to do Glenn?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know what, that's what people ask me. They said, what, what do you do? And, um, I like to tell them that I don't actually do anything. I have staff to do all the work. That's the point. I have an ops chief. I have a plans chief. I have a finance chief. I have a communications, you know, so I think if you actually think about that and you delegate all the work that needs to be done, what is your job at that point? Facilitate the resources and what they need and the support they need to make good decisions to bring to you for that final head nod. And um, so I think something that I really worked on and, you know, in a simple example around an ICP where I have all my section chiefs in and around and they're all busy, you know, just walking around with a cup of coffee, talking to them. You get a sense of what's going on and how your incident's running. The other thing I use was uh, on a large fire camp, I'll go into the mess tent when the crews and all the operations staff and everybody's eating based on the tone of the conversation, you know how your incident's going. I don't mean how's the fire going. I mean, how's the organization functioning? If people are quiet and head down and they feel like crap and, you know, versus they're telling jokes and talking about tomorrow and you instantly have, I use that as the biggest temperature gauge on how I'm doing as an incident commander and how my team is doing. If the mood is jovial, I've seen crews who've had their butts kicked for a week straight on the fire line, still feeling great about how things were going. Cause the camp's going, okay. They're getting the support they need. They don't feel like they're being overwhelmed, at least not resource wise. So I think that I, you know, the term situational awareness, right? I like just being aware and, and I spend a lot of time just talking to my people, direct reports the other thing I like to do is, I mean, I spend time with the crews, the ground level people chatting with them. It sometimes is an awkward conversation as the incident commander. You go and you sit down at their table while the crew's eating. And they're like, oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, but, the conversation stops. It's but like, I got to tell you, here. if you
1: can get them to talk, you'll know how things are going and you'll know if your ops chief is doing a good job or not talking to a crew. Same with the unit leaders and everybody else. So, spend the time we as a team used to have an informal meeting every morning um around the coffee pot we had a logistics chief who always made his own coffee it was terrible <laughs> but he had a coffee pot in the logistics tray, and we would go in there and some mornings we wouldn't even talk we would just all sit there as a team and have a cup of coffee before anything else got going you can gauge that and, and interact and be part of it they all knew that i was in charge per se um but you know i think think leadership is is recognizing the strengths and weaknesses of yourself and and helping others recognize their own and then to me encouraging them to provide feedback back up we we do a lot of evaluations downwards but you need to listen to what they're getting from the bottom up as well so
0: well and i i think it you know most organizations have three hundred sixty feedback and some sort of mechanism well during crisis, sometimes that gets thrown out the window, for example so that's that's an important point is to always be receiving that feedback but let's say that I'm a leader, and somebody tells me that you know what, boss, and they'll maybe say it more politely, but you don't let us make any decisions or you talk before I'm allowed to talk or something like that. Like what? What would you tell that leader on in terms of what to do with that feedback? Because there can be a tendency for us to be like, "Dude, you're just on the front line. You don't understand what I'm going through here." So how would you? How do you handle that? And again, I ask you because I know that you're very good at receiving feedback and and asking for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know one. It's it's one thing if you ask for feedback with the right intention. Sometimes people ask for feedback because they know it's the right thing to do. They have no intention of following it or listening to it because they don't believe it because they think they're already where they need to be. So I I think it's about, you know, suggesting that folks to that feedback will help them grow. And, and I use my, some of my own personal examples of feedback I've gotten and how it's helped me and moved me down the path of where I ended up. And some people still either like me or don't like me. I, I tend to recognize I can be a polarizing personality. But um, the recognition that if you're actually going to ask for feedback, you, you have to pay attention to it. And then, they want, then you need to prove to them that you heard it. And you can use all the buzzwords about active listening and all that, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. But demonstrate that you heard what they told you by changing your behavior. And so what I talk about in leadership, it doesn't actually matter what you say. It's how you handle yourself. And, you know, I'm, I'm good with a few quotes from different people. And I'm going to steal a quote. And I use this with my own staff. Three simple words. Example is leadership. And if you haven't figured that out, you're not a good leader. Because it doesn't matter what you say, I can tell you all the great things you need to do, but if, as soon as I walk out of that room and I don't model the behavior that I expect of you, it makes me not much of a leader in your eyes. And that's the biggest failing I see in crisis management. People talk the talk, but then they turn around and they do the exact opposite or they don't do anything like that. And so the big one I push on people is you need to demonstrate and model the behavior and actions that you expect of others. And again, another buzzword and I hate this one: actions speak louder than words and you can throw them all out there. But it's true in leadership. Like that's the key.
0: So that that brings up a really really interesting point with regard to essentially you're talking about walking the walk and yep. and having your actions congruent with your words and so on. One of the things I think that as leaders we sometimes struggle with is the notion of self-care, taking care of yourself and You know, a lot of times we're telling other people, hey, get good sleep, eat properly, all of these other things, you know, adhere to your shift, don't work later than you have to. And yet as leaders, we don't give ourselves the same permission. So what are your thoughts around what that looks like in terms of the leadership and the leaders needing to take care of themselves, especially in a marathon kind of, whether it be a campaign fire or a pandemic or something like that? What, What are your thoughts around that?
1: Well, and and I think that's the first place you can demonstrate leadership by leading by example. Like you need to think about limiting your shifts, make sure you're eating right, you know, do, do all the things that you, if you're suggesting others need to do that, then you need to do it as well. And, and I think if you're not healthy enough to be there to lead them, then you're failing as well. So I think that that is a challenge. I think there's a perception that leaders that I got to be the first one up, I got to be the last one to bed, I got to be the last one to eat, I got to, okay, until you can't function anymore. And so the recognition that you need to manage and moderate your own expectations of yourself to align with your expectations of others. And, uh, you know that's something that I really did struggle with like people always ask me you know how many hours a day did you work and how many you know and yeah I probably like most work too many hours on a, on a large-scale incident but it was something I learned over time and you know I'm blessed actually that I sleep like a baby in a tent in my own little single four-person tent and at the incident level in the crappiest conditions I still sleep well and so Uh, You know, I like to refer to that as my superpower, being able to pretty much sleep. And so I think looking after the self from that perspective um, is the most important piece because I've seen myself get run down to the point where I couldn't function. And now I'm failing the team because then when they break down, I don't recognize it. And so now, you know, those the decision making model starts to break. And, uh, and now bad decisions get made and people get put at risk potentially. And so, you know, that, that sort of self analysis and ability to self reflect on your own mental state as much as physical state um, is important. And it's the funny story actually about that was a realization for myself. We had a large scale ongoing incident with uh, quite a bit of uh, impact to the public in a small community. And we brought the uh, our agency or ministry as a critic of Incident Stress Management Program or its peers who come. And, and, and typically they get called in when there's a single incident that's occurred. In this case, we brought them in because there wasn't. It was an ongoing day after day after day. And I just thought, let's bring them into camp. And so a three-person team came in and we tried to uh, make sure they were available and talk to people that, you know, and this is before we started to get down the road of, you know, it's okay to not be okay, right? Like we're all chest pounders and tough. We can do it all. And we never need to sleep, eat, or cry. And, uh, and it was funny. They'd been there for a few days and they were asking me how I was doing. I'm like, oh, I'm good. I don't need your help. And you know, blah, blah. And anyway, but when I looked back every single day for five days in a row, I went and talked to one of them for over an hour. Wow. Subconsciously, I was reaching out to them. I didn't need it. I didn't feel I need it, but yet I spent an hour a day talking to them about what was going on for me in the situation. So I actually talk about that story openly now when I'm in leadership and uh, when I'm coaching. And I also talk openly about ending up in counseling after a fire season, because I think when people see other uh, leaders in senior roles, accept their own uh, mortality, it creates an environment for them to go, Oh, maybe it is okay to talk about this stuff or to engage others. And so I've actually had people reach out to me after speaking on things like that. So, you know what, that was great that you said that because there's a stigma attached to this as a first responder to not being okay.
0: Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I think that we see in crisis, people are so emotionally and personally invested in the incident and, and they take so much ownership over it, which is good from, you know, a commitment perspective, but we we often forget that that comes at a cost as well. When you're emotionally engaged into a situation, it's not just your J-O-B and that has a real impact. And so I just also want to just add on to that with regard to one of the hardest things for me, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts the one of the few times I'll ever give a direct order is if somebody isn't taking a break or going home or taking care of themselves, because in my experience, they never want to go. And so the only time I'm a heavy typically is if they're not going home or they're not taking care of each other or themselves. Do you have a similar experience with, uh, with, with your instance as well?
1: Yeah, for me, uh, meal breaks and rest breaks and, uh, hours of rest between shifts are super important and it's something I am a bit of a dictator on. Um, And again, because I hold myself to the same standard. And so uh, in, in a way to actually enforce it, we used to schedule a team meeting at one o'clock. And the reason was is because lunch is from 1230 to one in most camps in our camps, the hot lunch. So we would all gather for lunch and then, and I would make them gather for lunch because we're going to have a meeting at once. You got to be here anyway. And so that was my subliminal way of forcing them to take that break and cause otherwise they'll go grab food and go sit back at their desk and keep working. Exactly. Yeah. So we would, it forced that. And that was part of it. And whether they recognize that's why I was doing that or not doing it, it doesn't actually matter. But that was things I've used. I've literally just walked up to people and go said, go take a break, go for mm-hmm. a walk, do something. I mean, that's the thing. I do it for myself. I do it for others. And I, and I think that managing that mental and physical fatigue in a long drawn out incident, you think about some of the seasons we had in BC, like we went back to some of the same incidents, three and four different times. Yeah. Like How depressing is that? Oh, I'm going to set my tent up on the same square. It was on five days ago and literally I, back in the day, an IMT would go to a fire and we'd have it wrapped up 10, 12 days. We'd all give each other a high five and we'd go home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now when you're going out on four and five deployments back to the same fire, now admittedly they were a hundred kilometers farther along than they were last time, but different piece of ground, but your camp's in the same spot. Like Mm -hmm. there's a huge emotional toll that comes with that. And in 2017 and 2018 where we started to get repetitive deployments the same places that's when we really had to manage that because you don't have that same level of excitement that you do taking on a new incident you're going back and you're like oh we're here again
0: right it's not groundhog day it's groundhog incident yeah and especially when well because the name of the incident doesn't change all the geography is the same there's not a lot of novelty in that and so now what is the leader's job? So let's say that, that it's a marathon, right? Whether it be COVID or any other crisis yeah. where w- maybe it's a longer haul, what is the leader's job or what is their responsibility with regard to managing the tone and, and the pace and all of those other things? Because admittedly, sometimes it's friggin' hard to keep the sense of urgency up and, and if people aren't, you know, if they're not being deliberate and, and, and conscious, then complacency will will step in, and risks and decisions won 't get made properly. so, yeah. how have you, in your experience, managed to deal with that tone and that pace and that tempo of a longer duration operation because I think the first few hours, first few days you 're right there 's an adrenaline kick that happens there's all this stuff to do, so you go go go, but that 's not where problems happen it 's now in the of maintenance phase. So h- how do you manage that from your perspective, from a leadership perspective?
1: Yeah, I, I think really is, is focusing on, you know, as much as this is going to seem a bit weird, like it, these large scale incidents, the objectives never change. We know what the objective is, the big scale objective, but you know, sometimes that can seem a bit insurmountable. And so I think we used to look to try and establish intermediate, um, shorter-term goals, achievable, things you knew you were going to be able to look at and achieve because people crave being successful. When you go out for weeks and weeks on end and every five days that incident expands exponentially and you lose all the work you've done or the work you've done now has no value because the wind shifted. So you need to sort of look to some of those pieces. Um, and I think the other thing that we used to do, and we used to laugh about it within our team, we had what we called the social committee. They used to plan things to take our mind off of work and we would do things. And, you know, particularly when your command set, your ICP or your camp is close to a small community. Like we used to make an effort to get out into that community a bit and explore the local areas. And, you know, one of the things my team used to do, we used to go to like the local farmer's market. Like just things to break it up because if you're focusing for 14 straight days or more on the same objective and the same thing, we get it. There's a job to be done, but you got to find a way. And so, you know, one of the things is leadership for us was for me was to say, let's do something different today. Let's change things up um, you know, in a perfect world, it had all of my IMT members been completely interchangeable and certified at the same level at all the different positions. We could have just swapped people around logistics. You're going to go do operations. Operations can do plant, you know, whatever. I mean, see, that's not realistic given capacity that we have in our program. And like most you, we're all experts at something. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but, but to really, to manage that sort of I think having achievable objectives so you can celebrate some success. Because what we do is we focus on the negative. And an example I'll use, and it's something I learned in Australia this winter working there, is most agencies in Canada, if we have a negative outcome, and I'll use a wildfire, so we destroy 25 homes, a neighborhood gets burnt, what is in the news? 25 homes were destroyed today by the fire. Mm -hmm. Why don't we talk about the 2,000 that didn't burn and that we saved? And that the structure protection crews went out and say we don't we don't celebrate success in, as emergency responders we tend to focus on what where we didn't succeed and in a large scale long-term incident those not success in things add up fast that's why we have a long-term large scale so really trying to talk every day a bit about what went well and it's all we can talk about after action. what went well what the tricky I'm not talking after action review I'm talking about let's talk about some success and some days on the incident success was nobody got hurt today that was a success because some days that literally was the only everyone got fed no one got hurt and everybody's smiling eating dinner perfect success
0: and that's that speaks to the balance of leadership where you want to be optimistic while still being realistic, yeah. uh, but not um, catastrophic in your thinking. Because I, one of the issues that I've, I've seen with COVID and obviously this I think will be the the sign of times to come is the role social media has on the human psyche now where yeah. to exactly your point, there are millions of people in this particular context, self-isolating voluntarily because it's the right thing to do. Yes, there will be a few people that aren't, but of course that's what's hitting the media. That's what's hitting social media. And so it's really difficult. So I really like that because as a leader, you have to focus on the positive because I think like you, I do this because I see the best in people. I see neighbors helping neighbors. I don't, I've seen all my, I've seen my share of fatalities and all of that other stuff. And, but what keeps me coming back is that humanity is inherently good. And I think you would see that uh, at your level as you're working with different communities and whatnot. Would, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, you bet. And, and I think that's where we need to, um, you know, and I, and I think back to the use of social media and I think about 2017 where we got beat up constantly in social media and on the news and on everything else. And, and at the end of the day, I traced it back in, in my mind anyway, in my small vision of the world, which was limited to a few incidents, which were very large. But we created an information vacuum. We hid behind the standard PR info that we put out and we didn't tell our story well enough. And so you create a void and it gets filled in by the public. And it, 25 years ago, it got filled in by the local crackpot and nobody listened to them anyway, so no one cared. But that local crackpot today has 2,000 followers on Twitter. And so when they say something, there's 2,000 other people who are like, he's right, and now off it goes. And so...
0: Yeah, and and their Twitter following doubles because of this incident as well.
1: Yep, Mm -hmm. and so where we've tried to work uh, more proactively was... Let's tell more of the story early on and up front. And whether it's through these, the knowledge experts or local community contacts or however you want to do that through social media, push more facts out. And then if they don't want to believe the facts, that's okay. But at least we gave them facts. And, and that works on all aspects in any kind of an incident. Like if you have information, why not tell it if it's the truth? Now, understanding that there's sensitivity around certain things that can't be talked about, and and, and as a response organization, all response organizations understand that, but the reality is don't create an information void that will be filled in by the vocal minority. You need the the majority to be on your side, and we saw that in 2018, a big pendulum swing. We pushed information out, and so when that vocal minority started to spin their version, people would get back on there and say, no, no, I just heard on the news or I saw this on the web, what you're saying is not true. Now, if they choose not to believe your facts, that's okay, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we need to be uh, a lot more open and sharing with information and, and that helps with that public perception the social media because the social media has a massive impact on your people. Particularly, you think about the average age now of first responders, they are experts at social media and they literally spend every waking minute there, they're not on the fire line, reading it. And when they get continually beat up and slandered and talked about what a crap job they're doing, it has an impact on them. And you can tell them all you want, stop reading social media. No, they're never going to stop. So... I think understanding and using the tools that we have as leaders and as part of broader government or whatever organization you're with to tell your story. As, as I used to say, I want to control the narrative of the information that's going out to the public.
0: Mm-hmm. And and Adults, that's not sure to be people. confused with manipulate the facts. Nope. Controlling the narrative is, is is telling the story as it should be told, yeah. not based on an interpretation from somebody or people that have zero awareness of what's truly going yeah. on. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that takes time and energy to do that, and it takes resourcing to do that. But the payoff is in the end. When you have the media outlets at the end of a long, busy season write an article about how great their experience was interacting with you and your team And because of the open access you gave them to the facts and to the fire and to shoot that photo they really wanted to get or that video, like that's the payoff. Because now they're telling the public, you can trust what these guys are telling you. I was there. I actually saw it.
0: Right. And it's a lot of times it's in those informal interactions that they're having. And and I think that organizations often forget that their best public relations people aren't the ones with the communications degrees. It's the individuals within your your organization when they're talking to different people and and recognizing that if they're sitting there and saying it's a it's a poop show and I work for the organization that that's where the message also needs to live in terms of hey, we're actually doing a pretty good job.
1: Yeah. And when the media and social media and the news outlets, whatever, are telling a positive story of what's going on, the impact on morale of your responders and of your agency, is, it's instantaneous how it changes the mood. The papers are suddenly out in the, in the lunchroom and whatever, and people are talking about it. And people are clamoring to, hey, when they're here, can I be interviewed next time? Which, you know, obviously we need to manage that too. But, mm-hmm. but the fact is, you can use that as a leader, use that dissemination of information to help improve overall, uh, you know, sort of morale and impact and, and everything of everybody else. Because a lot of times, you know, if you're on a large fire right outside a large community, you know the impact isn't the same but when you're impacting small communities where there's three thousand people like the tone will be very very different in those small communities for the most part right because the impacts are more significant on a per capita basis
0: and i know uh in alberta for example where i live unfortunately you know the the fires are getting bigger more catastrophic more quick and and as much as I hate to say it, but we are not that far from having an entire community wiped out before any responders even get there. Um, and and so I think that speaks to just the urgency with regard to uh, you know having our ducks in a row and planning and all of those other things. Um, but I wanted to loop back a bit and you've talked a lot about making decisions. And one of the challenges I think that leaders have is balancing the short term needs with that longer term plan. So an example would be um, in a community perspective, or I'll use a business, for example, where you have to really stop the hemorrhaging, you have to stop the, the financial impacts, deal with the people impacts, but as quickly as possible, Start thinking about what does it look like to get back to work. So, what guidance would you give? Because that's something that you've had to deal with for thirty-five years. Short-term, and what is the long-term game? So, how do you balance that?
1: Yeah, and I think those are always tough because you know a lot of us who are leading in crisis management or incident management, we're not experts in all those other pieces. And, and I think about impacting a small community, for example. So you go in and you recommend an evacuation and the local government evacuates a small community and you've just now impacted all those businesses and it's tourist season and there's an active wildfire. And so now people can't renew their house insurance. And so there's all these other impacts. But if you don't ask those questions to understand that, and so... You know, we always get the thing, when are you going to call this fire under control or out so that we can get back to doing our day to day business? And boy, those are hard. Right. And and I got caught by that one year on an incident where we rescinded our recommendation for an evacuation order to allow some local businesses who were being severely impacted to get back up and running. And two days later, we had to slap it, recommend it, go back on. And so you've got to balance that. Uh, economic pressure which quite frankly is political pressure from uh, different levels of government because our own government very rarely will put that kind of pressure on us Um, but sometimes you don't have all the facts and you've got to still make a decision and but the bigger one is and this goes back to this collaborative conversation up front as the decision-maker the more you are fundamentally aware of the impacts of your decision the more reactive you can be to move forward or backwards on those, depending on what it is. And simple things like uh, fire impacts the power line, knocks power up to a small community. You're like, oh, what's the big deal? Power comes back on in three days. Well, except if you're the local butcher whose entire stock of meat now has spoiled. Or, But those aren't the pieces that you think about if someone isn't telling you about these impacts. You're like, whoa, maybe we need to let the power authority back in as soon as humanly possible. So maybe they can get the power back on on day one or day two instead of day eight. Um,
0: and the other thing too is recognizing the cascading events too. So if power is you know, sh- shut off for this community, maybe it's a hub for telecommunications, which services 911 yeah. or Northern BC uh, or whatever that looks like, right? So that, that's yeah. really, really important um, yeah. in terms of engaging the right people.
1: Yeah. And I think that's where this sort of more upfront bringing all the stakeholders, bringing everybody in who may or may not be impacted of where the likelihood of this event going is. Because then you can be upfront about what decision making looks like and they can tell you what the decision will impact them and then what that, for lack of a better term, what re-entry looks like and what the timing, because you know you you make a recommendation to evacuate a small community and then 3 days later you're like yeah you can go back and you recommend it's not that simple they can't just go back because they don't have sewer or water or power or you know so i i think understanding the impacts and consequence of those decisions and again i think particularly in our agency where we tend to make recommendation Where we get to do more is allowing those other parts of it back in to get the infrastructure back up and running ahead of time and and what criteria. And we get a lot of pressure obviously when the, you know, power lines, phone lines, internet, high speed telecommunity, when that stuff's all been impacted. There's a lot of pressure to get that stuff going back. And so I think working on your decision making on how to let that happen, but you need to be thinking about that before you make the initial decision because you and, have to think about consequence and impact.
0: And I think because of the, the private sector and the corporate sector going through this exact thing where you, maybe it's not even looking externally from your agency or your company, but you could have all of those people from within your organization. And at least at the table, like you said, and, and you may not make the right decision, but at least you're making an informed decision or an educated guess with regard to, you know, moving forward. So I want to wrap it up here, Glenn. And so let's say that with all of your years of experience, you now have the opportunity to have a coffee with, let's say it's a, it's a corporate manager. They are facing in this case COVID, but it could be any kind of crisis for their, their company or their team. You've got a couple of minutes. You're going to, uh, we'll take you out of the mess tent and we'll put you into a nice uh, restaurant. Okay. So yourself there and you're going to sit down and have a coffee with them what are one or two things that you would tell that that leader that corporate leader based on all the years of experience that you have that you know they're facing a crisis and you want to sit down and you want to help them what what would you tell them
1: i think you know the big thing they need to understand is that the worst thing they can do is nothing lack of action will derail any organization faster than even making a wrong decision, quite frankly. Now, no decisions are ever wrong. But but the other thing is, and I, and I use this term, you know, paralysis by analysis, right? Like, at what point do you just got to make the decision? And so what I talk about with my folks sometimes, and I would suggest to this person, do you have 80% of the information you need to make a good decision? Yeah. Okay. So you could make a decision today. Yes. How long is it going to take to get the other 20%? Of the information you need to be 100% certain three weeks okay do the cost benefit analysis so you're not going to make a decision for an additional three weeks to gain another 20% certainty like you need to think about those variables right and uh, I I think one of the failings I see in leadership particularly in in leaders who struggle are is that fact that they don't like to make decisions without having a hundred percent of what they think is all of the information. And frankly, you never have it anyway. It's, it's a perception on you based on your own reality. Cause the minute you make it, someone will bring up something else you hadn't considered anyway. So sometimes, and I don't want to use a certain term, you got to go with your gut, but sometimes you kind of do, you got to say, I have enough information to make a well-informed decision right now. The other one I would suggest to people is because you will end up being challenged on your decisions at some point and is to, you know, and I'm not saying that you document everything you think and say through an entire day, but there's key bullets you need to always want to make sure you have as backup because inevitably someone will come to you and say, what were you thinking when you made this decision? And, and I think back to court actions, for example, which takes years to get through the system. And, uh, you know, I, have been asked about decision-making on an incident I was on in 2017 and I literally cannot recall what my thought process was to make that decision at all. Now I know I made some notes and I probably can read that book again and go, Oh, that's what I was thinking. But that's, it's, it's a real interesting concept. And I see people do that. They just lock up. They don't have all the facts. And so they don't make a decision. and inaction in a crisis is worse than taking some action.
0: I really, really like that. And I think we see that a lot of, lot of times in the corporate world where I've always thought if I have 100% of the info, then I'm incorrect. Because I'm missing an entirely, like a huge glaring gap in my knowledge somewhere. You got a blind oh.
1: spot if you think you got it all.
0: Huge, oh, Glenn! We could talk for hours, my friend, So I will wrap it up here, and uh, I will, with the caveat that uh, heck, we may end up doing this again um, in the near future. In fact, I would love to do that because the breadth of knowledge that you have the the years of experience and, and having to make the tough decisions, I think really lends itself well to what a lot of people in the private sector are going through right now and COVID-19 is the, is the context now, but next year it could be something completely different. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and thank you for your service as well to, you know, the citizens of, of your province and the contributions you've given to people through your training and coaching and all of those other things. So thank you very, very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us.
1: Oh, great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.